you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to the end of 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel, chapter 31 at the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 1 at the beginning of 2 Samuel. We're going to be doing both of those. Now, originally in the, in the Hebrew Bible, they're not, it's not two books. It's not 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's just Samuel. Uh, years later, the books were divided, chapters were added, verses were added just so that somebody like myself could call out to you, hey, open up your Bibles to such and such, chapter such and such, verse such and such. So verses, chapters, uh, those are not original. Those were added so we can find our way. But anyhow, First Samuel chapter 31, Second Samuel chapter 1 is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, that's on page 252 in the black hardback ones around you. And as always, if you don't own a Bible or don't have a good Bible, take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, I mentioned how, you know, it's a, it's a privilege to get to sit down here and get a chance to hear you guys, uh, but I, I've been in ministry for 10 years now. I've been the lead pastor of this church for almost 10 years now, and there are a lot of joys that I have had as uh, your, one of your pastors, one of your elders. I've been with you in some of your greatest moments. Um, that I had the privilege of entering into, seeing some of you come to faith, baptizing some of you, uh, seeing you have babies, marry, and you, like performing your wedding ceremony. Um, just an awesome opportunity that I've had a chance to be with you in so many of the highlights of your life. But as a pastor, there's also hardships. And heavy things um, that, you know, I and the other elders uh, enter into. Heavy things, gut-wrenching things. And one of the most gut-wrenching things that I have to do sometimes is preach the funeral of someone that I know is lost. Which means that their soul is now in hell. I have to preach the funeral of someone that, that I know did not repent and believe the gospel. They did not submit their lives to Christ. And so because of that, their soul is now in conscious eternal torment. That's a gut-wrenching thing to do. It is a tragedy to die without God. It is a gut-wrenching tragedy to die without God. And that's what we have in the text before us this morning. We have King Saul, who is a religious man, but an unrepentant man. And he dies without God and goes to hell. And so it's a heavy thing that we have before us this morning. It is a tragedy. To die without God. And so while it's heavy. It is something that we need to talk about. We need to think through. And so what I want to do as we approach this. These two chapters is rather than kind of what I normally do. Kind of preach a section or read a section and preach a section. And then read a section and preach a section and so on and so on. What I want to do today is I just want to read it all. And I'll give a few explanatory comments as we go. But then I kind of want to step back from the chapters and look at Saul's life as a whole, all right, his life and then now this tragic death without God 
And I want us to consider a couple of things. I think there's a couple of things as we look at his life and, and this tragic end that we need to consider and we need to think through. And so that's how we'll approach it this morning with my prayer being that in humility that we would examine our hearts and we would listen to the Lord as he speaks to us through his word. So with that said, let's, let's get to it. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 31. What we got going on here is kind of there, there was a scene change at the beginning of chapter 29. It had been talking about Saul in chapter 28. And the spirit of Samuel had said, hey, Saul, you're going to die today. All right. Then we had a scene change and it talked about David for a little while. And now we're coming back here at chapter 31, circling back to the scene change that had happened at the end of chapter 28. And so we pick it up there. Page 252 in the hardback black Bibles around you. Verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Remember, that's David's best friend. And Abinadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus, Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And so, just kind of get, getting the picture, Saul and his sons are dead. And the Philistines start celebrating uh, as if... Well, let, me, let me read a little bit more and then, then, we'll, then we'll do this. Verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, like David had done with Goliath. And stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body, and we'll see in a minute his sons as well, to the wall of Bethshan. Now, let's try to get this picture in our heads. And Saul and his sons are dead. And the Philistines are celebrating it like it's a victory of their gods over the one true God. That their god, Ashtoreth, has defeated Yahweh, the one true God. And they hang the headless corpse of Saul and his three sons on the wall of what had been an Israelite city, but they fled. And so they hang their bodies on the wall for birds to come and pluck at and for them to rot in the sun. Pretty gory. 
And so you've got the bodies there rotting away on the walls, visible to everyone that looks in that way. But verse 11, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead see this, and this is the one like good thing that Saul had done, right at the beginning of his reign, chapter 11, he had rescued the city of Jabesh Gilead. And so this thankful city, verse 11, but when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now for the Israelites, the burning of bodies was usually considered desecration. Right? That's not what they did. That's what pagan nations did. That's not what the Israelites did. The Israelites always and exclusively buried their dead because they didn't want to dishonor them or, or identify them with pagan nations. But they do burn the bodies here. So what's that about? It was actually probably to prevent further dishonor because, remember, Saul's headless. The four bodies have been hanging on the wall They've been rotting away. They've been, birds have had at them. And so to prevent further dishonor, they burned the bodies and then they bury the bones because burial is a big deal in Hebrew culture. You remember Abraham searching so hard for a place to bury Sarah. And you remember Joseph saying, take my bones out of Egypt when you go in the Exodus. And just as a side note, for further like honor and respect. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, David will come and exhume these bones and take them to be placed in Saul's homeland of Benjamin, placed in his father's tomb, his father uh, placed in his tomb. And so big picture here, you've got the three sons, they're dead. Let's keep going and we pick up now again with the story of David who's just finished res rescuing the city of Ziklag from the Amalekites. And so 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, like, third, like, alarms a little bit, third day, it's the third day, what happens on the third day in the New Testament? Behold, a man came from Saul's camp, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his, and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were closing upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. 
And so what's going on here is this guy's got the crown, he's got the armlet, and he thinks he's going to be able to get some kudos from David for bringing these to him. The problem is he doesn't know that David, though Saul hated David, David respected Saul, revered him because he was the Lord's anointed. Right? This guy doesn't know that. He's an Amalekite. He's a sojourner. He doesn't know the full story. He doesn't know that Jonathan and David were like brothers, that they'd been in many, many battles together, and that Jonathan, at great cost to himself, had given up his claim to the throne and said with Samuel, yes, David should be the king. And so this guy, not knowing any of that, thinks to himself, man, if if David finds out that I kind of helped finish off Saul and his sons who had a claim to the throne... And I bring him the crown and the armlet. Well, that that might just pay some dividends down the road. And so he lies and tells David that he actually killed Saul. And his lie backfires horrendously. David takes him at his word. And so look at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So the moral of the story is here, don't lie. Okay? And then the rest of the chapter finishes off. It's a David's song of lament over the deaths of Jonathan and Saul, just kind of reiterating that David did not take the crown by force, that he trusted the Lord to fulfill his promise in his time. And so that's kind of the the story. But as we pull back now and kind of think about Saul's life overall, a life that began with such promise, but because he refused to fully trust God and instead trusted himself, trusted that he was smarter than God, that he knew better what to do than God, Ultimately, even as he maintained the outward expressions of the Hebrew faith, because he fasted, he kept the festivals, still, he rejected God. And now he's dead. And he's outside of God. He's outside of Christ. And he's in hell. And so big picture now, as we kind of consider some of the things... We need to realize in the face of, of dying without God. You've got to realize that one of the you've got to realize that you can be religious and lost. You can be religious yet lost. Saul was very religious. He kept the festivals, he fasted, he, right? But he never actually repented and believed. And so he was a very religious man, but lost. And tragically, this happens today all the time. And I love you enough to warn you that you 
can be religious and lost. And two of the ways I see this working out most prevalently today is through what we'll call cultural Christianity and false repentance. Kind of a kissing cousin of that, false repentance. And so kind of under the heading of, like if you want to write down in your notes, number one, you can be religious and lost, kind of a 1A, let's talk about the danger of cultural Christianity, and then 1B, let's talk about the danger of false repentance, okay? So that's kind of outlines, you can be religious and lost, 1A, danger of cultural Christianity, 1B, danger of false repentance, and so let's do the danger of cultural Christianity first. And when I say cultural Christianity, what I'm talking about is this idea of like, well, well my mama, she, she taught Sunday school for like 27 years, and, and daddy was a deacon, or my granddaddy was, was a deacon, and you know, there was this one time after 17 verses of Just As I Am at summer church camp where I went forward and I said some words that some guy told me to say. I don't really know what they were, but after I said them, he told me, you know, you're going to go to heaven now. No real understanding of the gospel. What's the gospel? Um, I'm not really sure. No real understanding of the gospel. No true repentance. No true faith. But just kind of, you know, you've got enough understanding of the Bible to convince you that you are safe when in fact you're not. Because it's not your heritage, it's not your culture, it's not the way you were raised, it's not the repetition of some prayer as if it's a magic incantation to protect you from the wrath of God that saves you. No, no, no. It's about you. Have you personally flung yourself upon the mercy of God for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, I prayed a prayer at VBS when I was seven. All right. But what about your life since then? Well, it doesn't matter. I, I prayed that prayer. Okay, how's the gospel affecting your life today? I try to do more good than bad, I guess, but it it doesn't matter. I I prayed a prayer. Jesus is my homeboy. Friends, is that kind of false thinking, American Bible Belt superficial Christianity that damns thousands of people to hell? You are not a Christian just because you say you are. You are not a Christian just because you prayed a prayer. Are you living like a Christian? We're not talking perfection here. We're not. Praise the Lord, we're not. But is there a progression? Is there a love for God, not just the stuff He gives? Cultural Christianity damns thousands of people of hell. Are you one of them? Think about this. Jesus, when you think about the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anytime Jesus shows up, there's always crowds, like big ones. So a classic example would be the feeding of the 5,000, right? But scholars will tell you that was like 5,000 men. It was actually probably 20,000 people when you add in children and you add in ladies. And so Bridgestone Arena, packed out full, that's kind of the picture there, 20,000 people at the feeding of the 5,000, right? And then you come over and you think about 
um, Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So it's Passover. So tons of people made pilgrimages. The city is packed out. Scholars say about 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people crammed into little Jerusalem. So crowds are everywhere. And in comes Jesus. And everybody's going bananas. They're throwing down palm branches. They're throwing their coats on his way. They're shouting Hosanna, which is a messianic proclamation from the Old Testament. They're shouting these things. Thousands of people going crazy, right? Five days later, he's crucified. Three days later, he rises again, hangs out for 40 days, tells his disciples, wait until I send the Holy Spirit. And then you get to the disciples waiting in the upper room for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And do you know how many people are there now? Acts 1, 120. So you have thousands, tens of thousands of posers, of cultural Christians, and you have 120 legit ones. And that's why being straight with you this morning, not cutting any corners. And if this is your first time, I promise I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher. But the text brings it today. Some of you are going to go to hell. Because you're a cultural Christian. You've never truly repented and believed. You've been around the things of the church. You know a little bit. You know, maybe even you know just enough about Jesus to inoculate you to the real thing. And worst part of all of it this life of a pseudo-Christian, is that you may not even realize it. Satan has so pulled the wool over your eyes that you don't even realize it. And so I stand here in love, not in condemnation, asking you, is this you? Are you the person that I've been describing? And if so, repent. Repent. And believe the good news. Jesus isn't against you. He's for you. That's why I died on the cross. You just have to grab hold. And believe. And the fact that you're in this room this morning hearing this message is proof that he's drawing you in. So repent and believe. Trust Christ. You can be religious and lost. And so that's the danger of cultural Christianity. Closely related to that, let's do 1B, the danger of false repentance. Like, like true repentance is something that, sent, uh, that Saul never learned. Like he would externally act repentant at times. It was always like the guy or, or the child who gets caught doing something and they're very sorry that they got caught, but they're not sorry that they actually did it. But they'll play the part to try to minimize the damage, try to minimize the, the fallout, but their heart is just as far from God as it ever was. And so again, I ask, is that you? Is that you? Are you playing pretend with your repentance and faith? 
And make sure you don't misunderstand me. I mean, for sure, I've already said it once, but the Christian faith is not a religion for people who do not sin. Right? We all sin. Every person in this room, every person on this planet is a sinner. And the good news of Jesus is that if we put our faith and our trust in him, he will forgive us of all our sins. And so Christianity is absolutely not a religion for people who do not sin, but it also is not a religion for people who will not repent. Somebody says, what's repentance? Repentance is turning from your sin and from yourself in turning to Christ. Okay, it's, it's more than just being sorry. It's an altering of the way we live, an altering of what we rely on, an altering of what we hope in and what we're counting on for salvation. It's where we agree with God about our sin, we grieve it, we decide to leave it, and we flee to Jesus to cleanse it. And so repentance, listen to me, always leads to action. Always. False repentance leads to rationalization of our sin or blame shifting and then conditional or partial obedience. But true repentance leads to life change. Always. Not necessarily instantaneously, but it does lead to life change. Always. It's like I've said before, if I get hit, if you get hit by a Mack truck, you don't look the same. You don't. You get rearranged. And you aren't the one who does the rearranging, but you get rearranged. The Mack truck crushes you. It rearranges you. All right? You get hit, you get changed. Friends, God's love the gospel is a Mack truck. You can't get hit by it and not be changed. If you aren't changed, you have to ask the question, did I get hit? Did I repent and believe the gospel? Did I trust in Christ alone, His life, His death, His resurrection, to pay for my sins as a substitute? Have I truly done that? And so look at your life. If your life is unchanged, you have to ask that question. And again, sometimes people who are playing the game can look so clean and people who truly are believers, I mean, faith of a mustard seed, it's so tiny and so it may not even look like much. So it's hard to judge based upon people's actions, but I'm asking you to look at your heart. Are you changed? Have you truly repented and believed? Or are you like Saul, a guy who trusts ultimately in himself and not in God, and just lives out this life of false repentance? Friends, like Saul, you can be religious and lost. Again, Saul's a highly religious man, but unrepentant. He died. He went to hell. What about you? J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, 
writes this. I think you guys, we've got one of our small men's small groups reading his book, Holiness, right now. If you want to be in a men's small group or a women's small group, again, Connect Center will get you hooked up. But one of our groups is reading this. J.C. Ryle writes this. Believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. It passes the power of man to separate them. False profession is often so like true. This is what I was just saying a minute ago. And grace is often so weak and feeble that in many cases, the right discernment of character is an impossibility. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until the Lord returns. That's a parable, a metaphor that Jesus uses. But there will be an awful separation at the last day. The unerring judgment of the King of Kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them forevermore. The righteous shall be gathered into a place of happiness and safety. The wicked shall be cast down to shame and everlasting contempt. In the great sifting day, everyone shall go to his own place. And so as we contemplate the death of Saul and the gut-wrenching tragedy of dying without God, the message here is hard and it's heavy, but it's to sober up. It's to wake up. It's to face reality. That you are going to die someday. It's going to happen. Nothing you can do about that. And there's wheat and there's chaff. And Jesus is what makes the difference. Nothing else. And at that great day of judgment, your cultural Christianity will burn up along with you in unquenchable fire. It is possible to be religious and lost. To be Christian-esque and lost. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. But here's the good news. This is number two in your notes. Jesus came to save sinners. And since we're all sinners, everybody in here, everybody on the planet, that means that Jesus came to earth to save you if you will just repent and believe. There aren't prerequisites. Jesus came, like the whole purpose of Jesus coming is he came to live the life that you didn't. We're called to a life of perfection. We have the Old Testament law. Keep that. None of us do. So Jesus came and he kept it perfectly in our place because we don't. Then because of our sins and God's goodness and love and justice, he has to have a, there's a penalty for sin that we should pay, Jesus came and paid it for us. The condemnation that I owe, that I absolutely deserve for my sin that I've committed, Jesus took my place on the cross and suffered and died in my place as a substitute payment. And then to defeat death and prove that He is the Son of God with the power to save, He rose again on the third day. And different, here's the kicker with all of that. He did it, knowing full well every bit of your life and sin. 
every bit. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, all of your sin was future. He knows every bit, every God-belittling moment, every thought, every action, every deed, every time you have turned your back to Him, you've shunned Him, you've denied Him. Jesus knows all of that, and He still went to the cross for you. That's the measure of His love. That's the measure of His grace. And knowing all of that, He still chose to set His affections upon you. And His grace towards you and His forgiveness of you, it's not based upon you. It's based upon what He did. His life, His death, His resurrection. And so it leaves no room for self-righteousness or boasting about what we've done because we didn't do anything. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. And so here's the reality on this heavy day. Some of you walked in here this morning with the wrath of God on you. That if you died today, you would go to hell. But you need not. You need not leave here with the wrath of God upon you. If you will confess your sins to Jesus, place your faith in Him, an exchange takes place. He takes your sins, He gives you His righteousness so that you can stand before God the Father, holy and blameless, not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what Jesus did for you. It's an exchange. He takes your sins, He gives you His righteousness. His life is credited to your account. That's what happens in the gospel. And so it's like if you're in Christ, you have a great big invoice with a stamp on it, paid in full. That's the gospel. And that's what like the tragedy of Saul's life should point us to. That there is hope. We don't have to be like Saul. Like you still have a chance. Saul's dead. No chance for him. You're here. You're listening. You still have a chance. There is hope. There is salvation because Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save cultural Christians who've you know, been decades walking as a Christian, but not truly. And he came to save you. Those of you who secretly pretended just so mom and dad wouldn't get mad at you, he came to save you. And so repent and believe. He's holding open his arms. And so for those of you, my non-Christian friends in here. Again, the fact that you are in here hearing this message in God's providence is proof that he's drawing you, that he's wooing you, that he wants to save you. Those of you in here who are merely culturally Christian, but you've never really repented and believed that Gospel, God's inviting you home. He's saying, come home. Don't don't be embarrassed about what people would think. Don't be like, oh gosh, they're going to think. No, no. People are going to love the fact that you have repented and believed the gospel. Don't be fearful of what people think and let that rob you of eternity in heaven. And so come home and Thank God for how patient He's been with you. And how He's shown His mercy and He's opened your eyes to the truth. 
And then those of you who are legitimate believers, God's calling you to also repent of all the vestiges of superficiality that mark our lives. Because they do. While we may not be truly cultural Christians, we probably are far more cultural than we realize. And we need to repent as well. Not salvifically, but in sanctification. And so, yeah, this morning's been a bit heavy. But that's because the tragedy of dying without God is heavy. It is weighty. Like, eternally. For as the Apostle Paul, actually the Apostle John put it, John 3.16, but I'm not going to stop there. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so in humility and in silence, we're going to take about a minute. And I want you just to search your heart. For those of you that are maybe culturally Christian, but you've never really penned and believed, and your eyes are being opened by the Spirit to that now, pray. Ask God to search your heart. Ask the Spirit to move and to open your eyes to the truth about yourself. Whatever that may be. Let's pray. Father, so often I take the grace that you have afforded me and Jesus for granted. Forgive me. Father, so often I spurn your word. I disobey your commands. Forgive me. And I praise you that because of Jesus, I am forgiven. Not because I deserve it, because I don't. But I'm forgiven because 
Jesus was perfect for me. And he's paid for my sins. Every last one. And I praise you for that. And thank you that you would have mercy on a rebel. And Father, I pray that in these moments that we've had, that for those who, whose eyes maybe have been opened to the fact that they're, they're not actually a believer, that now in this moment and in these moments they would become a believer. They would take you at your word. Truly. Not superficially, but truly. Father, I pray that for those who are believers, maybe their faith is young, their faith is weak, that they wouldn't be scared by this message. Because they're in Christ. And in you, is salvation in you is life in you is hope in you is grace and mercy and goodness all the days of our life and even beyond we will dwell in the house of the lord forever but father i do pray that for those of us in this room that are believers that this word and this tragedy of dying without God would, would be a piece at least of what compels us. And the glory of God compels us ultimately, but this would be a piece of compelling us to not waste our life here. But to be disciples who make disciples. To be ambassadors for Christ. To love our neighbors well by sharing the gospel. To love the nations well by getting the gospel to them. By praying, giving, and going. And so, Father, stir our hearts afresh for the good news of what you've done. That you have, in Christ, paid it all. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. In Christ's name.